18. While you're finding your place, I'll say a few words of introduction. In a way, this sermon will follow upon some of the things that we said this morning as we look to Matthew's account of the birth narrative of Christ. One of the things about Matthew that's different from Luke is that he focuses on Joseph in this account. Luke will focus, as we'll see, on uh, Mary, and he'll place Mary in contrast with Zechariah and Elizabeth, going back and forth between the two. But here Matthew will turn our attention to Joseph, and the contrast that he will draw is one that is between Joseph and, um, as we'll see in the weeks to come, Herod and uh, the chief priests. And so that's what we're going to see here as we look to Matthew. But what I, want to, um, what I want to point out before we dive into the text is that Matthew, in, in many ways, shows Joseph to be uh, like us. If you reflect on your life and you think back to your childhood and then your youth growing up, up till now, you probably look back and say, I had expectations for my life and things did not really go according to plan. Unless you're one of those who set forward your whole life, planned it out, and executed it perfectly. I wonder if anyone's here like that. But in any case, we're going to see in Joseph's life that he had plans, ordinary plans, normal plans, but what happens in the passage before us interrupts those plans, changes those plans, forces him to act differently. So if you found your place in the text in Matthew 1.18, would you follow along with me as I read? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and called his name Jesus. Father in heaven, we pray this evening that you would give us light, guide us in the way of truth, Make us to understand your word. Father, I pray that you would uh, work in us to form us in the image of your Son. Even as we look to others who, by their example, like Joseph, lived in a Christ-like way, we might say, even before Christ was born. And so as we look to his example, may it cause us to look to our ultimate example, your Son, Jesus Christ, May we follow in his ways, a way of lowliness and a way of humility. May we learn to walk the path that he walked before us. And may we learn to walk that path in faith, trusting that he did it perfectly on our behalf, that which we can't do on our own. 
Ultimately, Lord, fix our eyes on him who you sent to save a people from their sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week I began, and I want to continue, a uh, pattern of pointing out some ways in which we might approach the text. That is, helping you to put into practice on your own some of the principles that I have put into practice in my own study. And this week I want to focus on two things that will help us to be better readers of Scripture. The first is thinking about how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, how the New Testament writers quote and cite the Old Testament, because it does present a challenge to us when it comes to interpretation. And the second that I want you to think about is how we put into application the things that we read in Scripture. Now, I I want you to understand that ultimately the Scriptures are not a mere book of moral instruction. What I mean by that is they're not meant only to form us according to an ethical standard. They are ultimately and primarily meant to point us to Christ. But it would be wrong to say that because that's their first and ultimate purpose, that they don't serve to form us morally. The Scripture does form us in His image. God does not merely save us and leave us as we are, but He saves us and forms us more and more into the image of Christ. And I I do want to focus on that tonight, this idea of moral formation and how it is when we read the text, we might properly put these things into practice in a way that's not legalistic, nor is it pharisaic, but in a way that is indeed Christ-like. So the first point about how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament, we're going to see by looking at this quotation. Here in verse 22, Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So turn back to Isaiah chapter 7 with me. What I want you to do when you start to think about these questions, about how does, the, how does Matthew or how does any New Testament author use the Old Testament, begin to make it a practice to actually look at the quotation from the Old Testament in its Old Testament context. And so here we go to Isaiah chapter 7. And what I'll do, rather than reading all of this chapter, is I will briefly summarize the historical context in which this verse is set. In Isaiah 7, what we see is that there's a political problem facing Israel. The king is Ahaz. He's a wicked king. He doesn't trust the Lord, but rather he has turned to idols. And he is caught in a difficult situation. The king of Assyria is the most powerful ruler in the world. And he controls all the nations around him, and they, Israel being one of them, and Judah being one of them. Judah is the, the kingdom, I should say, not Israel. Judah is the kingdom that Ahaz uh, reigns over. They are vassal nations under the control of the Assyrian ruler. His name is Tiglath-Pileser III. And as Israel has separated from Judah at this time. Israel and Syria in the north decide, we don't like this situation. We want to throw off the rule, throw off the yoke of the king of Assyria. And so we're going to form an alliance and rebel. We would like Judah to join with us. The problem is, 
Ahaz doesn't think this is a good plan. Ahaz thinks this is a rather bad plan, but he's caught in a difficult situation because on the one hand, if he turns against Assyria, he invites the wrath of the strongest man in the world. But if he doesn't turn against the king of Assyria, Israel and Syria are threatening to depose him. Now, if he were a man of faith, he would say, nevertheless, the Lord made a promise to my father David that his reign would last forever, so I will trust in the Lord. And in fact, that's what Isaiah comes to him to invite him to do. God sends Isaiah to Ahaz to invite him not to worry about these kings to the north and not to put his trust in the king to the east, that is, Assyria, but rather to put his trust in the Lord. And he invites him to ask of the Lord a sign. And so we pick up that situation here in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now what Ahaz is doing here is showing a false sense of piety. I'm not going to test the Lord, but really he has no, no uh, inclination to trust the Lord. We can go back to uh, the book of Kings and we'll, we could see that this is an idolater through and through. He has already committed himself in his mind to appeal to the king of Assyria for help. and He's already committed himself to send a tribute to the king of Assyria so that Tiglath-Pileser will come to his aid and defeat the northern kingdoms. But God here invites him to ask him a sign and to put his trust in the Lord. He says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, this is from the Lord through Isaiah. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In a sense, what God is saying is that because you refuse to ask for a sign, you're going to get a sign. Before all of that happens, you're going to have to deal with the king of Assyria. That he's going, later on in this passage, he describes the king of Assyria like a mighty rushing river that's going to flow into Judah, flow right up to the neck, but then recede. And indeed, that is what would happen in the course of time under Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. The king of Assyria would send his armies, and they'd come right up to Jerusalem, they would ravage the country, but then God miraculously would turn those armies away. So this is what God is going to do as a way of disciplining Ahaz for his unbelief. But Matthew quotes here from verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Manuel. And the there's a difficulty here, because it seems like this is a sign that is given to Ahaz, but Matthew is applying this sign to uh, the birth of Christ. There's another difficulty in this. You, you, some of you may be aware is that there's disagreements about how to translate the word virgin. I'm going to just put my cards on the table right now and say virgin is the correct translation. But the word in Hebrew is alma, 
which if I were to, uh, this is from one com commentator, John Oswald, if we were to have a very um, uh, difficult translation, a very long translation would be a young woman of marriageable age who if she is unmarried is a virgin. Well, you can see why the translators didn't choose that one. <laughs> and so virgin is the right translation, though the word in different contexts could mean young woman or virgin. The reason why virgin is the right translation is because of the way in which Isaiah describes the sign. Let it be as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol. A young woman giving birth to a child doesn't really meet that criteria, does it? So Isaiah's pointing forward to something that won't actually happen in the lifetime of Ahaz. But it's a murky kind of uh, prophecy. It's a, it's, a, it's a veiled prophecy. It's difficult. What are you to make of this? And indeed, God eventually will give a sign to Ahaz through the birth of a son, that is, the birth of Isaiah's children. And God tells Isaiah to give his children these peculiar names. But the name isn't Emmanuel or anything like it. The name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which is uh, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. In other words, as Ahaz and others saw this boy of Isaiah walking around, they say, oh, there, there goes the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. He would be a constant reminder to them that the exile's coming, that judgment is coming. This is not the son that Isaiah talks about in 714. But to understand who that son will be, we need to consider an even larger context. Because as this portion of the narrative unfolds, we come to Isaiah chapter 9, and we see another picture. I'm going to, to say and claim that this is the same promised son that we saw in 714. We see another child, not a different child, but another picture of the same child in chapter 9. Here where Isaiah says, in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And here's the reason. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then once more, if you flip ahead to Isaiah 11, I won't read it all, but here we see another picture of this same child, but who has come into maturity, and he is now the one who will reign forever and ever. And I'll read the first three verses that says of him, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's, that is David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And I'll leave off there, but what I'm pointing out to you that it, is that if you consider the larger context of what's happening in Isaiah, Isaiah is doing this kind of back and forth. 
where he looks into the near future and he prophesies of judgment and things to come. And then he looks into the distant future and he prophesies of the salvation that will come through the Christ. And this is all relevant to Ahaz because Ahaz is a son of David who is a fool. He's a foolish man who has turned to idols and rejected the way of the Lord. But Isaiah then looks forward to a more distant day when God will send another son of David who will be not foolish, but wise, who will not walk in the way of the nations, but will walk in the power of the Spirit. And the reason why Matthew can simply quote Isaiah 7.14 and say, this is fulfilled here, is because he has in his mind this whole context, this whole development in Isaiah. And we can see that because later on we'll see in Matthew that again and again he quotes from Isaiah, from Isaiah 9, and then much later Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 40 and on and on to show that over and over again when Isaiah looks forward to the Christ, these things are being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. And so that's the first point that I want to make to you about how we can approach the scriptures is that when we come to these quotations or even uh, allusions to the Old Testament, it's a good idea to go back and look at those verses in their context and think about what is happening and how is it that these things indeed are fulfilled. It doesn't usually happen in such a uh, uh, simple predictive way. Some prophecies are like that, like the fact that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. But other ones are, they require us to understand the, the unfolding context of what's happening in the prophetic writings and in the Psalms and elsewhere. So that's the, the main thing to take away from that as you approach the text, is go back to the Old Testament and see the passage in its context and think about how that relates to what the author in the New Testament is saying. The second thing, then, we'll spend the rest of our time together focusing on is how does a text like this work to form us into the image of Christ? And for this, we're going to look, in fact, at the example of Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, and see what kind of decisions that he makes and what kind of things would be necessary to motivate those decisions. I want you to think then again about how we began by talking about making plans for our lives. For Joseph, this would have been an inconvenient reality when he discovered that the woman to whom he was betrothed was pregnant. You see, back then, one would be betrothed to a, uh, a wife, but he would not take her as his wife right away. He would prepare for the marriage, doing things like preparing a house, preparing, um, uh, preparing for, for them to have a life together, and they would have a time of separation before they came together and consummated the marriage. So during that period of betrothal, if one discovered that his wife was pregnant, normally this would be considered a, a scandal. And any normal, any decent man would have been within his rights to do what Joseph planned to do. He planned to put her away. But because Joseph is a righteous man, we read, because He's a gracious man. He resolves not to make a show of it. He resolves not to put her to shame. But rather, he resolves to do this quietly. And this, we're told, of course, is because he is indeed a just man. And yet, as he's contemplating these things, this is not an easy decision for him. You see what, how the text des uh, describes 
his activity. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. He's sleeping on it. He's thinking about it. He's agonizing over what's the right thing to do. In spite of this, many others, many other lesser men would have simply said, well, this is an easy decision. Send her away. Find me another wife. But Joseph agonizes over it, and he contemplates these things. We know, of course, that this child is conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit in Mary. But Joseph does not yet know that. So as he sleeps on it and considers these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appears to him in his dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, notice the similarity here between what we read this morning concerning Zechariah. As with Zechariah, an angel appears to Joseph. As with Zechariah, the angel's first words to Joseph are, do not fear. But with Zechariah, it was, don't be afraid, period. You could even say exclamation point. But here it's, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It seems the implication is that Joseph really does want to marry her. He really does have an affection for her. He's afraid to do it because of the situation. But he really does love her and he really does feel for her situation. And so the angel says, don't be afraid to do this. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. Why? For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now to answer that call to do what the angel said is going to require Joseph to embrace a life much like the life that Zechariah and Elizabeth lived throughout their youth and into their old age. One where their neighbors would look at them with raised eyebrows, would speak about them behind their backs. And yet, again, Joseph, being a just man, is going to obey the word of the Lord. He's going to do all that the Lord tells him. The angel goes on and says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here what we see is that Joseph is called to a noble mission, a difficult mission, an inconvenient mission, but he's called to a noble one to raise as his own son the Christ, even though physically speaking this child is not his own son. You can, men, think of your own situation, how difficult that might be for you to be tasked to raise a son who is not, properly speaking, yours. For many, they'd say, I don't want any part of that. Well, just simply think of the example of, uh, that we have from the book of Ruth. Ruth seeks a kinsman redeemer. What was a kinsman redeemer? Someone who would take a widow as his wife, and then his firstborn son would not be counted as his own son, but would be counted to the deceased man as his son, and would inherit that which belonged to the deceased man. And Boaz is not the first in line to fulfill this obligation, but the man who is the first in line says, I don't really want any part of it. And we think about in that example, what that man didn't know is he was saying, I don't really want any part of being in the line of the Christ. 
But he didn't know that. But Boaz was a good man, a just man. And so he took Ruth and he became her kinsman redeemer. And in a similar way, slightly different, of course, the parallel is not exact. But here what we see is that Joseph takes on this responsibility without question, without resistance. He willingly submits to the will of the Lord to take this child as his own and raise him for the mission to which he is called, the mission for which he was sent. For this is not merely a man who was called to do something great as with John, but this is one who was before all time, who was sent into the world for the purpose of saving his people from their sins. And so properly, he is called Emmanuel, God with us. And Joseph is tasked to raise this child, this mysterious reality that the God of the universe would send his son to become a man, to become a child and to grow and to have all of the weakness and all of the frailty that becomes a child. And it's Joseph's responsibility, as we'll see in the weeks to come, to protect this child, to care for him, to provide for him, to put himself at risk for the sake of this child so that he might grow, become a man, and do that for which he was sent to do. That is, to go to the cross and save his people from their sins. It's a noble calling. It's a great calling. And yet we need to recognize that it's not a calling that will be lived out in nobility. You see, it's a, it's a noble calling, but it's a humble calling. Joseph is not a king, though he's a son of David. He doesn't live in palaces. He's not a wealthy man. He's a mere carpenter. Now he's going to be a carpenter very soon on the run to Egypt and then to back again and then to Nazareth and always living in obscurity as he raises this child. And so what is a noble calling would not look like that to the world. And Joseph is called to embrace that. You could imagine someone saying, you know, I would rather you say I've called you to, uh, to revive the Davidic kingship. You are a son of David and why don't you become the king? Sounds a lot better, right? No. Why don't you toil away in obscurity as a carpenter in Nazareth and raise this son in the fear of the Lord? That's what David, excuse me, that's what Joseph, the son of David, commits himself to do because it's what the Lord commanded him to do. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and called his name Jesus. Now, I spoke about the concept of moral formation and how texts like this should be applied in our lives so that we learn to live a life that is godly and Christ-like. And I think that the key things here to note in, jo in Joseph's life are his willing submission to the will of God to do all that God requires of him, even if it's difficult, even if it's inconvenient, and even if it requires him to humble himself. And we have the same calling placed on us, even if the specifics are quite different. 
None of us is tasked to do exactly what Joseph is to do. And yet, we are all called to live our lives with the mind of Christ. That is, a mind that counts the needs of others as more significant than our own, as we read in Philippians 2. That is a mind that looks not to our own interests only, but also to the interests of others. This is what Joseph does and exemplifies for us. He doesn't join some kind of movement, some kind of revolutionary movement that is meant to topple the Roman rule and topple the rule of Herod. He doesn't say, I'm going to bring in the kingdom in my own strength. He simply commits himself to raise a child. And yet, by doing that, the kingdom will come. What he does in raising this child is far more significant than anything that any revolutionary in, any, in all of history ever did. What he does in submitting to the will of the Lord is more significant than anything done by a president, anything done by a king, anything done by anyone of great and high status in all of history, save our Lord himself. Perhaps we might say those who, like Joseph, follow the Lord and look to him in faith and with humility. And in the same way, we can recognize that those simple, normal things that we do in our lives have eternal significance, have kingdom significance. Fathers, raising your children in the fear of the Lord is a thing of eternal significance. If you never run for office, if you never win an elected position, but you raise your children well and trust them to the Lord and trust their souls to Him, it will be a work that is far more significant than if you were elected president for four years or eight. So we ought to think in that way as we think about texts like this. They form us morally. Now, I did also say that we don't want to become legalistic about it. And what I mean is we don't want to let the, the ethical application of passages like this prevent us from seeing what we most need. We don't want it to let us or to prevent us from or cause us to, to become self-righteous, you see, to think, well, okay, so... I'm doing these things that are exemplified in Joseph, so I must be pretty good. I found helpful in preaching, and I give this to you as a, uh, something that you can do in your own reading, is that when I'm struck by a passage and find it difficult to work through or difficult to preach, Brian Chappell has given a threefold uh, method of application for sermons like this. It begins with seeing our fallen condition or asking the question, how does this passage highlight our fallen condition? And then asking the question, what is the redemptive solution that this passage gives us? And finally, how does this passage form our virtue? How does it figure into moral formation? Briefly, we can say that it highlights our fallen condition and our redemptive solution very quickly and simply, but in the same way. By speaking of Jesus as the one who will save his people from their sins. Very clearly, we need to be saved from our sins. 
Very clearly, we have a, one who is sent to save us from our sins. And so, as we apply these things in our lives, we ought not to lose sight of that reality. And that's true for any passage that we approach. There is an important and essential aspect of moral formation, but it is not the only aspect. That's how we avoid becoming Pharisees. That's how we be avoid becoming legalists. By remembering that this passage, like every passage, also, also shows us our sinful nature and also shows us our need for Christ. So this, then, these are two ways that we can approach texts like this, especially narrative texts. First, when we encounter these Old Testament citations and quotations, go to the context, consider the context. And second, when we think about how we're to apply these in our lives, think through that threefold process of fallen condition, redemptive solution, and moral formation. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for, um, thank you for your son who you sent to redeem us from our sins. I know it's a simple thing to say, and I thank you, Lord, that uh, you are pleased to hear prayers that are prayed with only simple words. For there is nothing that is more central to our lives, no truth that is more essential for us to know than that you sent your Son into the world so that all who believe in him might be saved from their sins. We, Father, we pray that you would not leave us there only with that recognition that we are sinners in need of your grace received through the cross, but that you would also conform us to the image of your Son. And as we see examples like Joseph and many other godly people that we see in Scripture, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to understand how we might also imitate them. Even as your Apostle Paul told us, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would teach us to be imitators of the one who humbled himself for our sake so that we might be saved. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.